Hey, so I want to show you something. Here is a picture of our dogs. Yeah. One of those is Millie, the other is Sadie. They're really roughing it because they're on the couch without a blanket. Yes, without a blanket. We do not pamper them whatsoever. So these are our dogs. When we went to Israel, we couldn't put them in a kennel. They have like animals there. My dogs do not know their dogs. They think they are people. And I would appreciate it if you don't tell them. So uh, what are we going to do with our dogs when we're gone? Well, we have family members, the Tanksleys, Eli and Sheila Tanksley. We're related by uh, our virtue of the fact that their daughter married our son, and they are dog lovers. So we brought our dogs to be watched by the Tanksleys while we were gone because we knew they would be in good care. What if the Tanksleys, who were simply entrusted with the watch care of the dogs, what if they took it upon themselves to change their appearance? What if, for instance, uh, they chose to dye these dogs so that when we uh, came back, the dogs looked like this? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> what if they thought that was really like a cool thing to do? Would we not have a right to be upset for crying out loud? They don't have ownership of the dogs. The dogs don't belong to them. The dogs were simply entrusted to them. Don't you see? Would we not? Would you be upset? Yeah. All right. Listen to me. There's nothing to do with funny looking dogs. There's a point I want to make. Marriage is not our idea. We didn't come up with the idea. We don't own it. We only have stewardship of it. God has entrusted it to us. It's under our care. Let me ask you a question. How have we done how, how, how good are we in taking care of holy matrimony? Doesn't God have a right to be upset when he stands by and sees what we, we have done with the institution which he authored? Don't you think he has a chance to be just a little upset about we have, how we have the audacity to refashion it, to redefine it, to remake it, to show such disrespect to it? By the way, in case you want to know what God says about marriage, it's not that complicated. It's pretty clear, and it's pretty clearly stated. Here it is, just to refresh your memory, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's clearly stated there. Here's what it says. For this reason, that is, for the cause of coming together in marriage, a man, and by the way, man in Hebrew means man, and a a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And by the way, wife in Hebrew means wife. It's feminine, one masculine, one feminine. That's what it says. And they shall become one flesh. So it's not complicated. Listen, 24 words, if you're bored, count them. 24 words in verse 24 of Genesis 2 says everything you and I need to know in order to respect, in order to care for, in order to be good stewards of what God had to say about marriage. In 24 words, he said, it is a unique, irreversible bond between a man and a woman. And it is exclusive of other distracting and interfering relationships, sexual and otherwise this is, what, this is what God said. And this whole concept of marriage, spoken of right there in Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 2, verse 24, is everything you need to know about what the Bible has to say about marriage. And I have to tell you something. When we think we have the right to remake it, 
don't you think God has a right to judge us for it? But what about, okay, we don't have a right to remake it, but what about government? Doesn't government have a right to refashion marriage? Doesn't the institution of government have the right to modify the institution of marriage? No, it does not. Why not? Because the institution of marriage came into existence before the institution of government. Marriage is the first institution, Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, government which came after marriage cannot redefine marriage. Okay, what about the church? And this is happening all the time, by the way. Many church groups are uh, finding themselves uh, with the permission of redefining marriage. So what about the church? Does the church have the right to modify marriage? Absolutely not. And for the same reason, you see the institution of marriage not only predated government, but it also predated the church. So here are three institutions authored by God. Marriage, government, and the church. But the first is marriage. Therefore, those subsequent to it cannot read back upon it their particular perspective and point of view. Marriage originated with God. Since marriage is his idea, not something dreamed up in the mind of man, neither man's government nor man's religious institutions has the right to redefine marriage. It's as simple as that. But what about God? All right. I can't change marriage. Government can't. Church can't. Can't God change his mind about marriage? Sure he could. I mean, God's wise, isn't he? He's up with the times. He's relevant. He's in touch with the culture. Surely he wants marriage to be up to date. Can't God modify it? Yeah, he surely could. He could do whatever he wants. But the question is not, can God redefine marriage? The question is, has he redefined marriage? The answer is absolutely not. You saw God's fundamental definition of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. After that, a lot of time passed, thousands of years, before God's Son came to be enfleshed and here on earth. Genesis, God the Father spoke. Later on, thousands of years later, God the Son came to earth, and he was approached one day by religious leaders. They were not seeking information. They were seeking a grounds upon which they could accuse him. They approached him so as to test him. They said, Rabbi, that's what they called him. He was a teacher in their eyes. Rabbi, said they, do you believe that a man can divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? And the Lord's response is recorded for us down to this very day in Matthew chapter, I'll tell you in a second as soon as I find it. Don't go away. Somewhere in Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Here's what the Lord Jesus said. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, and here's what he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we read in Genesis 2. So between Genesis 2, thousands of years later, Matthew 19, the Lord Jesus, when asked the question about the parameters of marriage, referred not to the cultural trends of the day. He wasn't seeking to be relevant at the expense of truth. He referred way 
back to Genesis chapter 2 and quoted it word for word. So in answer to the question, can't God make changes with regard to marriage? That's an academic question. You can argue it all you want. The fact is, he never has. In all the eons of time, we're still called to task with reference to the extent to which we are willing to live consistently with God's basic formula for marriage, one man irreversibly bound to one woman, the two becoming an exclusive covenant bond. So government cannot redefine marriage. Religious institutions have no right to redefine marriage. And God has not redefined marriage. So I ask this question, have you? In your mind, have you redefined marriage? Is the popular trend and tendency of the day to redefine it so as to make it consist of really any kind of bond as long as it's based on love? Are, are you getting caught up in that? Government can't redefine it. The church can't redefine it. God hasn't changed his mind about it. I don't want to hurt you. But do you have the audacity to think you can change marriage? If so, on what basis have you made the intellectual change in your mind? On what basis have you moved from the traditional, age-old, biblical definition of marriage so as to embrace another one? What altered your thinking? How did you derive this new truth on this old subject? Let's talk about the truth for just a moment or two. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe there is truth that is true for everyone all the time? In other words, do you believe in something called absolute truth? It's truth that transcends culture and time, feelings, everything. Absolute truth. Truth, Or are you one who believes that what may be true for some at some time is not necessarily true for all, all the time? In other words, we have two options, and I want to know which one do you opt for. Here are the two options. Option number one, truth is absolute. Option number two, no, truth is absolute is relative. Truth is either true for all people all the time or truth changes all the time. Which option do you choose? Decide. It cannot be both. If you say, I don't know, I like both, come on. Don't commit intellectual suicide. It's not possible. This is oil and water. The two don't mix. Which is it? Option one, Option two. Let me just say this while you're thinking. If you call yourself a Christian, you must choose option number one. If you call yourself a Christian and choose option number two, I wonder if you're a Christian. Why do I say such a dogmatic thing? Because the God you say you belong to is an absolute moral unchangeable being who has declared his unchangeable moral truth. Truth is not relative with the God you say you identify with. It has to be option number one if you are a regenerated Christian. If you're not, would you please 
would you please come talk to one of us privately? Not to argue, just to talk. Because it's one thing to say, I am a Christian, and it's another thing to be one. Entirely different. The true Christian will choose option number one. If truth is relative, think about this. If truth changes all the time, then there is absolutely no way to declare anything as being wrong all the time. And I want to tell you something. That is exactly what a world in rebellion against God wants. Can you see the agenda? If truth is relative, it's situational, it depends on culture and time and perspective and all the rest, then you can never lovingly point the finger at someone and say, what you just did is wrong. That person would say, who says? It may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. And that's exactly the hidden agenda behind the quest to relativize all truth and to minimize the reality of absolute. If there is no absolute truth, nobody can be held accountable to anything. And that's what the world wants. You know, it says something in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, about ancient Israel, but I think it applies to modern-day America. It says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Relative, non-absolute truth. Welcome to modern-day America. That's the way it is. Now, folks, if there is no absolute truth, there is no ultimate moral rightness or wrongness about anything. Maybe right for you, but that doesn't mean it's right for me. That's what a world in rebellion against God is after. Don't fence me in. Don't tell me what's right, what's wrong. If it feels good, I will do it. That's what's kind of happening. But if you call yourself a Christian, you must embrace, you must declare, and you must live by the absolute moral truth expressed by God about the first institution, marriage. So here is a little bit of truth about marriage. It is a mystery. It's flat out a mystery. Let's face facts. Look. This whole concept of one guy being forever bound to one gal, what? What if they find out they're not compatible, they don't get along? Why can't you sort of like kind of love one another but have many partners? I mean, you got the equipment, why not use it? Why, I don't understand why marriage has to be so exclusive. Why can't you come home to one at night but have relationships at other times. I don't understand it. Who says, by the way, you have to be married to only one? Why can't you, like, have a group? Why can't you be married to a group? I don't get it. This male and female thing, who said? What if two same-gender people love each other? I mean, it's just a mystery. Would you get in the way of their opportunity to be married? I don't get it. Why can't there be marriage between like an adult and a minor child? I mean, what? It's just so mysterious to us. 
In fact, it's so mysterious that the writer of Proverbs, pretty smart guy, the writer of Proverbs, uh, chapter 30, verses 18 and 19, said, there are three things too wonderful for me, four which I don't understand. And then he names them. The way of an eagle in the sky. He couldn't figure out the flight of an eagle. See, that's a mystery. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship in the middle of the sea. And here's the fourth mystery. The way of a man with a maid. The way of a man with a woman. The wise writer of Proverbs says, I don't understand male-female relationships. Are you kidding me? So let's just admit something. None of us do. It's quite mysterious to us, but that's the point. Because marriage is a mystery to us. Don't you think we need something more than our reason about it? We need revelation about it. And we get revelation about it from the God who doesn't find the marriage which he made to be so mysterious. He understands why he ordained it to be, what he ordained it to be, perfectly. He's not confused about stuff. He authored it. He inaugurated it. He knows what it's meant to do, produce, and represent. Don't you think we ought to bypass our reason as the ruling entity in our decisions, our feelings? Don't you think we ought to bow to external revelation from the God on high? Don't you think we ought to admit, I don't get it, but Father knows best? Why is that such a stretch for us today? I don't get it. It's not a mystery to God. There's an old story about... uh, some blind men who came upon an elephant. And um, they were challenged, each in turn, to describe this object in front of them by touching it. Couldn't see by touching. So the first blind man approached the elephant and took hold of the elephant's tail and proclaimed that, ah, it is a rope that I am holding. So he defined it. Another blind man went up close and put both hands on the elephant and on its side and said, ah, it's a wall. I'm up against a wall. Another blind man touched the ear of the elephant and said, it's something like a, uh, yeah, it's kind of like a fan. It's a fan. That's what it is. And then a fourth blind man felt the tusk of the elephant and said, I'm certain, I'm certain. It's kind of like, it's a spear. That's what it is. It's kind of like a spear. People tell that story to make a point, and the point is this. You see, they say, nobody has a corner on truth. That's what they say. We have to respect everyone's truth claims because everyone sees things differently. There is no such thing as absolute truth. It's truth as you perceive it, truth as I perceive it. That's the point of the illustration. But there's two problems with that conclusion. Here's one. Every one of those people was blind. And here's the second problem. Every one of those people was dead wrong. Dead wrong. Blind and dead wrong. Folks, we need truth that transcends our faulty and limited understanding of things. And we have that truth from God. We don't have to give in to everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We could say, God, I don't understand all things, but you do. I accept what you have to say about marriage. Folks, we need our thinking about marriage to be informed by what God has said about it. Are you familiar with Romans chapter 12, verse 2? 
quite a good verse. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think our problem as Christians today is that we are basing far too much on our feelings, on our feelings. But God seems to be after our thought life, you see? Be conformed. Do not be conformed to this world. How, God? By the renewing of your mind. That's what it says. So in making decisions about marriage and everything else, our first question uh, should not be, how do you feel about it? It ought to be, what has God said about it? Listen, i got to tell you something. I watch the Home and Garden Channel. And uh, I like House Hunters. You, you watch House Hunters? It's a cool deal. They have the most interesting combination of couples searching for a home. I mean, it's everything imaginable. Couples living together, uh, couples who are same-gender life partners. Once in a while, you get like an actual real-deal marriage thing. It's unusual. Every once in a while, you get this. So I watch it. And I say, uh, you know, they seem, these two men or these two women, I don't know, they... They've been together for a while. They seem to treat each other with respect. They, I don't, they, 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 they say they love each other. They, they seem to be committed to one another. They decorate really well. <clears throat> um, I find myself saying, really, God, are you right about, I mean, what harm are they doing? You know, Whose parade are they, are they raining on? What? You know, if marriage is such a cool deal, why can't they get in on it? I find myself leading with my reason and with my feelings. And before I know it, Genesis 2, verse 24, takes a back seat. Does that happen to you? Oh, it's happening to Christians in greater numbers. But folks, folks, God says, don't be conformed. To the world be transformed and it's by the renewal of your mind do you know the moment you became a follower of, of the Lord Jesus the, the moment you became born again regenerated from that point on God determined to go after your mind he wants he wants your mind he he wants to teach you and I how to think differently because our our thoughts haven't been right he's actually given us the mind of Christ if we tap into it, so, so as to be renewed. Folks, if ever there was a time when we needed our minds to be transformed and renewed, it's in the area of our perspective on marriage, I'm telling you. We are looking awfully like the world out there. Somehow they are getting to us more than we are getting to them. But God says, don't do it, don't do it. Uh, think right about marriage. Do you know it is so important? Did you know this, that the Bible begins and ends with marriage? Uh, uh, the first marriage in, in the Bible is in Genesis, and that's between two people. The last marriage, book of Revelation, is between the bride of Christ and Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The first marriage is meant to reflect in some measure the reality of the ultimate marriage. The first marriage, an earthly institution, is meant to make visible and to reflect something 
of the marriage which is out of this world. Uh, a single woman in one of our Bible studies came up to me asking a very honest question a week or so ago. Stuart, this series on marriage you're doing, is there anything in it for me? I don't want to come and be made to feel like an incomplete second-class citizen because I'm a single person. Oh, no, 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 no. Look, look. <laughs> the purpose of life is not to be married. The purpose of life is to be wedded to, to the Creator. And human marriage, which, by the way, doesn't last into eternity. Did you know that? There's no marriage in heaven. The essence of it is to reflect the possibility of an irreversible union with Almighty God. There's nobody excluded from, there's no second-class citizen who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. And i got to tell you something, because human marriage is meant to reflect God's divine intentionality and willingness to be wedded to those who by faith come to him. Satan knows this, and that's why he wants to undermine human marriage. If he can mar human marriage, then we don't have any visible representation of what it could be like to be wedded permanently and without divorcement to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why marriage is under fire like never before. And you got to know something. There's much more at stake than same-sex marriage. Listen. Judith Stacy is a professor at New York University, NYU, good school. She recently testified before Congress with reference to what they call DOMA Defense of Marriage Act. In so doing, she expressed the hope that revising our thoughts and laws about traditional marriage would give it, and I quote, varied, creative, and adoptive contours leading some to question the dyadic, dyad means two, dyadic limitations of Western marriage and seek instead small group marriages. That's the agenda of Dr. Judith Stacy testifying before Congress. Uh, there's an agenda that goes way beyond same-gender marriage. It's a whole obliteration of uh, one man, one woman being irreversibly bound why? Because Satan knows if he could obliterate that, we won't have any visible uh, reflection of what it could be like to be in a covenant bond with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, for your husband is your maker. By the way, single people, that's for you too. Did you know that? You're already married if you're a Christian. Your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts. And we are called the bride of Christ. One husband, a bride of Christ. And if Satan could obliterate that image in human marriages, ah, then he can call into question God's intent to be wedded to us irreversibly. Over 300 scholars, many of them Ivy League professors, wrote a statement calling for legal recognition of sexual relationships involving more than two partners. It's called Beyond Same-Sex Marriage. One of them, a professor by the name of Brake, uh, thinks justice obligates us to change our laws about marriage in order to, and I quote, get this, denormalize heterosexual monogamy as a way of life. That's the agenda. It has nothing to do with same-sex marriage. A same-gender couple is not gaining very much by us changing the laws about marriage. Not at all. Can love one another, can live together. There's plenty of rights 
accorded today. That's not the agenda. The agenda, and I'm not saying these people are conscious of it. That's what's so bad. It's really Satan versus Savior. I got to tell you, behind the scenes. And the prince of darkness can so infiltrate the minds of those who don't have the mind of Christ that there's an, uh, an all-front attack on marriage to obliterate from our minds any evidence of the fact that as one man walks irreversibly with one woman in a holy, sanctified, special, exclusive bond, that's exactly the offer God makes to us. I will be like a husband to you. You will be a bride to me. Hence the assault on, on marriage today. By the way, speaking of the Savior, this Jesus he prayed to the Father often. And, and in many cases, his prayers are recorded for us in the Bible. His farewell prayer, his last prayer, before he was crucified, resurrected, is recorded for us. It's fascinating. In John chapter 17, you can tell a lot about what was on the Lord's heart by seeing what he said last by way of petition to the Father. Here it is. I'll read you a little bit. John 17, verse 14. The Lord prayed, Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Ah. So my fellow Christians, I'll tell you what we've done in the last decade or two decades. We've done everything we could to study the culture so as to be relevant to it, so as to fit in. So we've changed our mode of attire. We changed... Uh, the movies we go to, the shows we watch, the music we listen to, the stuff we drink, uh, all under the guise of building bridges with the unsaved world so that they could relate to us and then we could then win them to the Lord Jesus. It's an experiment, in my opinion, that has failed miserably. I'll tell you why. You can try to compromise yourself all you want. You can try to fit in with ungodly, worldly people all you want. But the minute you open your mouth about an absolute moral truth emanating from the Bible, they're done with you. I have given them your word, and the world has not accepted them. The world has hated them. Why? They're not of the world. As much as we Christians are so compromised that we're trying to fit in the world. Are you kidding me? That's not our identity. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The Lord Jesus has given us a mission. And our major mission is to be people of truth in the world. But we have a problem because our major desire is to be popular with the people of the world. And so we're willing to do almost anything to be received, to be accepted, to be liked, even when it comes to compromising truth. Could I tell you something? My uh, concern is not so much with what the world is doing with marriage. Amen. My concern is, is what I'm doing with it and what you're doing with it as Christians. I'll, I'll tell you why. <clears throat> we are losing our voice. Listen. Uh, the Lord prayed this in verse 15 of John 17. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So you know what the Lord is saying? Father, I'm, I'm leaving them in the world for now. Why? Why, the God, why doesn't the Lord just 
quickly remove us all from this place. Take us home. It's for the benefit of those who don't yet know him that we're here. You see? But, but I want to tell you what we've done. We've gotten so compromised because our quest is not to be truth speakers and livers. It's to be popular and accepted. We've lost our voice. Listen to me. It's not possible for someone to live a kind of lifestyle they can't imagine. You can only do something you can conceive. When we preach to the world about traditional one man, one woman, permanent marriage, but when our divorce rate is pretty much the same, when we're living together like crazy, when we're doing the sex thing all over the place outside of marriage, <clears throat> when we're dating, marrying, unbelievers. You know what we're doing? We are robbing the world of an opportunity to see that what God ordained as the pattern for marriage works and is good for his will is good, acceptable, and perfect. We are ready to protest, write our congressmen, burn down buildings, and boycott stuff for the truth. But I'm not sure we're so willing to live by it. And in not living by it, we've lost our voice. They're not listening to us. They're saying, this Christ you claim to have renovated your life. What? You look like me. You act like me. You talk like me. You got the same stuff on your body I do. You got the same piercings. You got the same this. You got the same deal. You got your multicolored hair. Listen, I'm, it's not that that's the problem. Except, folks, this quest to fit in is going to leave us dissatisfied. As soon as someone says, do you believe that Jesus is the only way? And you said, yes. Whoa, you narrow-minded, intolerant. Do you believe that marriage is to be withheld from those of the same gen? Absolutely, Genesis chapter. Oh, you intolerant. You're not in our club anymore. You're not popular anymore. So I think to myself, oh, my goodness. If the Lord Jesus had that as, as his ambition to fit in, be popular, where would we be? Where would we be? What did it get him to be a truth teller? He was pierced through. He was pierced through. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. My big concern is not with the world out there. It's a compromised church, and we have lost our testimony. We're ready to go crazy over different things, but we have multiple marriages. We live together. I don't... It is not my ambition to hurt anybody, but to use the, the colloquialism, the truth hurts. When we Christians call to be separate and sanctified and special, do marriage the same way everyone else is doing, we don't have a right to speak to them about the riches of Christ Jesus and about how his formula for marriage is the one that works. They look at us and they say, it hasn't worked for you. It hasn't worked for you. I must tell you something. I don't want to hurt anyone, but we have embraced the divorce culture. We've embraced the divorce culture.
You know, there are people here living together who come to guys like me to ask uh, if I would officiate at their, at their wedding. Sometimes I say, I, would, I want to ask you something. Would you be willing to live apart until your wedding, therefore give each other a gift on wedding day, the gift of having demonstrated a capacity to wait on one another? Would you do that? And I say, listen, I'll give you some time. Think about it. You don't have to respond now. Let me know what you think. Almost every one of those couples never contacts me again. In fact, sometimes they get mad. Sometimes they have their parents call. People in this church, why'd you make my daughter cry? I feel like saying, why didn't you raise your daughter according to Genesis 2.24? Get out of my face. <clears throat> folks, folks, you agree these are desperate times, don't you? Stuff is happening. People say, oh, you went to Israel, it's so dangerous. What, are you kidding me? That's the safest place. On, are you kidding me? Houston is dangerous. Aurora, Colorado is dangerous. You know, Arizona is dangerous. Boston is dangerous. Are you kidding me? These are really, really desperate times. Now is not the time to try to fit in. Now, I'm not saying you have to be weird and obnoxious. I'm not saying that. But I'm just trying to tell you, no matter how smooth and diplomatic you are about stating the moral absolutes of the Bible, it's going to either meet with receptive ears. You, you may win someone to the cause of Christ, or else you'll be ostracized, but you cannot compromise the truth, even though that may, that may be the case. Folks, we've lost our voice in our quest to be relevant to the culture. The culture has found us to have nothing relevant to offer them. We have no, we have no, we have no hope. They're looking for hope. It's a hopeless, it's a hopeless day, and they're, and they're looking, and they're saying, but, but our relationships don't reflect they don't reflect any evidence of what it could be like to be wedded to the God of, of all hope. So folks, I'm not saying we should stop declaring truth out there, but how about demonstrating truth out there? So the Lord continues to pray, Father, they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. And in verse 17, he asks this of the Father. He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart. Set them apart. How? In the truth. And what is the truth? Your word is truth. Set them apart. Oh, my goodness. What a promotion. What a designation to be a child of the king. For God to say, I set you apart. I set you apart. Sanctified. Set apart. I set you apart. You're special to me. And you are to serve a special purpose. You are to bring glory to my name on the earth. And the Lord says, oh, God. Do this for them. Sanctify them. And when we compromise on the word of God because of our insatiable appetite to win a popularity contest, we are robbing ourselves of our true identity. God promoted us to royalty, royal priesthood. And we say, no, I just want to fit in with the culture so that I could be popular. The culture is going crazy. You don't need to fit in. There's kingdom culture. That's what we need to fit in with. Hey, I want to show you something as we draw to a close. I'm going, I'm getting too hot. So this is something called a talit. It's a Jewish thing. And uh, in the Bible, God told Moses, Moses, tell the people to put tassels on, like these, corners, uh, strings on the corners of their garments. Can you see them, those strings? God said to do that. And why? To remind them of my word. 
That's what he said. To remember scripture. That's what he said. And so Jewish men uh, oftentimes wear these things, and particularly at weddings. Here's what they do. They put it, you kiss it, you say a prayer, and, and uh, you, you, you put this on. You're, you're, hang on just a second. I want to put it on right. I don't want my rabbi to be mad. Is it vaguely straight? Okay. Something like that. So it's a, it's a tali. We, we put now, at a wedding, the groom wears this. And he essentially says to the bride, will you come under my talit? Because the word talit means little tent. He said, will you come under my tent? I want to provide for you. I want to provide a covering for you. I want to protect you. I want to care for you. That's the proposal. You come under my tali. Can I tell you something? That's exactly the invitation. The creator of the world in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, has made to us. He said, will you come under my wings? The word tali also is used sometimes in the Bible for wings. Will you come under my little tent, my tali? Will you tent with me? Will you allow me to cover up for the nakedness of your sin? Would you allow me to be like your husband? Single people, this is you too, right? Nobody's excluded. Would you let me be your husband? Would you let me protect you and provide for you? Would you do life together? Would you be willing to do life together with me? And God says, I know it sounds so far-fetched that I would make an offer like that to you. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you the institution of human marriage. And if you do it right... It'll help you to imagine the actual possibility of being wedded to me, being under my talit. And what have we done with that illustration of marriage? Degraded it, disrespected it, ended it, denied it. Our whole country, state by state, is redefining it. Our president announces support for a radical redefinition of it. Major countries of the world, one by one, are remaking what the maker made. If you don't think God has a right to judge us for it, you are wrong. Why don't you come under his tent? Why don't you just say, oh God, to be in the shelter of your wings, to tent with you, to have the nakedness of my sin covered up by your grace. To be right with you means more than to be accepted with a culture on its way to hell anyway. Why don't you make a decision? What's it going to be? I didn't say be odd. I didn't say be obnoxious. I didn't say be weird. I didn't say be irrelevant. I just said don't be compromised. That's all. Just don't be compromised. <clears throat> Because the evil one knows what human marriage is to represent, he has issued an uh, all-out assault upon it. And so what has been advanced in our day are manifold unholy ideas about holy matrimony. Tonight has been introductory. Thanks for listening. Next week, uh, I'd like to talk to you about one of the unholy ideas about holy matrimony, same-sex marriage. Let's talk about it.
I, I want to do my best to persuade you. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. Lord Jesus, thank you for tabernacling with us and for inviting us to tabernacle with you. Uh, thank you for the ex expression of your love through a symbol like the talit and especially through marriage. That's why I think it is to be holy because it reflects in a small way. It's meant to reflect in a small way. Your invitation to be wedded to us irreversibly in spite of us. Oh, God in heaven, I think we may have taken for granted what you've done for us because rather than responding to it as we should, uh, we seem to be obsessed with being accepted by a world that has rejected you. Oh, God, would you stir us up in the power of your Holy Spirit to be faithful to the marital vows that is to you. Oh, God, to dig in like never before, not to be odd, not to be weird, not to be obnoxious, but to be sanctified by truth. Thy word is truth. Oh, God, would you give us a voice in a world clamoring for hope, looking desperately for it. Oh, God, would you restore the voice of your church in our country and around the world? Would you make us to be, once again, a people willing to be distinct from the prevailing culture so that the prevailing culture could see how much better it is to walk in your word and in your ways. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being wedded to us. We are so blessed to be your bride of Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.